to go. Hello. Welcome back to Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 61. Before we jump into it, I'm going to remind everyone to please like, comment, subscribe, share this if you feel so bold, you know, and and donate. We're definitely uh, taking some money now. So, hey, if you want to help us continue doing this, that helps a lot. Today, we are joined by Adam B. Coleman, author, speaker, and founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. Um, he's the author of his latest book, Black Victim to Black Victor. Uh, he's an op-ed writer, a public speaker, and host of a Good Faith Space Twitter Spaces show, and he's the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. Adam, welcome. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So the way I found you is interesting because my... Uh, a friend of ours uh, reads the New York Post often. He gets the physical copy, actually. Like mm. He always reads it. He likes to laugh at the... They have great headlines. So he <laughs> took a picture of one of your recent articles, wow, which was right uh, Fixed Tuition First, Mixing Debt Won't Help My Son, and uh, shared it. And I was like, oh, that's Adam Coleman. I was like, oh, he's awesome. I've seen him on my friend Carrie's show. He's really smart. And, you know, I tagged you, and that was how you found us, and then I invited you on, but... Yeah. So maybe I guess we'll start off with this article. Um, it's actually the what, how, post version. how did you get to writing op-ed pieces, first of all? And this article, what led you to writing this about college tuition specifically? I know you're a father, right? Yes. Um, that'd be weird if I wasn't. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I have a, I'm not a father, and I definitely have opinions on this stuff, too. So. No, it would have been like that I hired a child actor <laughs> to take a picture. No, I'm just messing with you. Um, how did, uh, well, I think everything starts with some sort of beginning. So I started, um, I started Wrong Speak. You know, I started writing in there after... Um, Oh, well, during the during the writing process for the book is when I started Wrong Speak. It was mainly for me to just rant about whatever. Yeah. Uh, but then it turned into advocating for other people to write. Um, from there, I kind of, and still kind of to this day, I don't really write for Wrong Speak as much. I get other people to write. Um, and then I started writing for other publications. So starting with Schoon TV, uh, Free Black Thought, you know, I connected with them. And Twitter has been a great resource for me to connect with people. Um, and so it's just been from uh, one person to another and just meeting different people. Um, I wrote for Newsweek. That was that was a big deal. Yeah, um, you were on Fox too, right? Yeah. The Fo so Fox happened after that article. Okay. Um, that was the appearance um, that they wanted to talk to about the tuition. But um yeah, I got connected with uh, one of the editors from New York Post, and I've written four articles for them so far. Um, was about to have a fifth, but that's a different story. But um, but so far, everything everything's been, um, you know, just making making connections with people and networking and and improving writing, um, and you know, perfecting how I write. Um, so I think to answer your question. It was just all by circumstance. Um, uh, you know, I I already had, at that th I think at that time, I, I'd written a couple articles for New York Post, and I just reached out and said, hey, I have an idea. You know, I wanted to write about this, and I said, sure, go for it, and sent it in. So um, once you have connections, uh, just behind the scenes for people, once you start making connections with people and have, establishing good relationships with editors, 
they're more willing to listen to what you have to say. You could just pitch an idea. They say, sure, go for it. Let's see what it turns into. And, you know, you can still get denied, but at least you have communication with them. And they'll let you know, like, sorry, I can't accept this for whatever reason or that this is great. We'll publish it. So, um, you know, it was simply just something I wanted to write about because it was in the news. You know, this idea of just wiping clean the debt. And to me, you know, superficially, it sounds great for people like, cool, I don't have to pay any. Yeah. But, you know, I was thinking about how we've done all these different things in the past couple of years, just benefiting, you know, the, the very wealthy people, uh, you know, people who don't really need our help. Um, and that's, you know, when I started looking more into it, it's extremely beneficial basically for the top income earners within this country. So while, yes, there are the, the struggling kids from working class houses that went to school and having trouble paying off their, their debt, you know, I feel bad for them, but at the same time, it's, you know, it wasn't a mystery. You signed up for this, you know, and on top of that, even if I was all for it and just say, go ahead and wipe the debt clean, I'm thinking to myself, this doesn't actually fix anything. Yeah, it doesn't address the problem. And <laughs> it doesn't I, address the problem. I think one of the things, you know, you're really talking about in the article too is the cost of higher education. And I think that's that's what would, I guess, get more to the root of the issue is how do we make college more affordable for people so they don't have to take on these massive amounts of debts? I'm, I'm in student loan debt. My partner is in student loan debt. It's like my generation was definitely raised and taught that you have to go to school, um, you have to get a college degree in order to excel in this in this world, in this economy. Um, we very much weren't pushed toward trade things. We were kind of all pushed toward academia. And I think there's a problem with that as well, you know, kind of this general approach to pushing people toward that. Yeah, no, and, and I get that. You know, I don't mean to sound harsh when I say, you know, you signed up for it. Um, but I understand that there's pressure when you're 18 years old or even before, you know, because you're preparing to go to college, maybe in your sophomore year, junior year, um, you know, from your parents and, and teachers and just say, yeah, you need to do this. You need yeah. to do this. And everybody else around you is doing it. So I'm not saying that, you know, in a vacuum, you just woke up one day and wanted to go to college and said, F it, I'll take on 80,000. Um, but, at, you know, at the same time, it, it's the unfortunateness of being an adult. Once you sign whatever you sign, whether it's a car note, mortgage, whatever, you unfortunately bear the responsibility yep. of it. Um, you know, ultimately, I think with the article, I just wanted to point out that throwing money at a problem doesn't fix a problem. Um, you know, I see that time and time again. That's like the especially government, but that's like the American solution to everything. Let's throw more money at it. Um, you know, like schools are failing. Let's throw more money at it. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they equate everything to, to money. And I'm looking, I'm like, yo, these schools get a ton of money. It's like, but they need more of it. <laughs> it's like, can we get anything more uh, substantive, you know, when it comes to a particular issue? And that's why I think it's interesting when we do compare how, how much we spend versus other countries to come out with worse results. <laughs> you know, so it's it's definitely interesting when you when you look at it that way on the on the grand the grand scheme of other countries. You know, I think 
there's value in Americans having a, an American approach to certain things, but if it's not working, it's not working. Maybe you need to think outside the box a little bit. Um, actually, it just kind of reminds me of um, Michael Schellenberg, uh, who's running for governor in uh, California. Not you know what I'm talking about? No. Not familiar. Um, he wrote the book, um, shoot, why I forget the name of the book? I think it's called Sicko. Uh, but he's talking about the, the homeless situation in California. Mm. Um, but one of the things he did was he went to Holland and he talked to officials there to figure out how they address the issue. And he wants to use some of their techniques because what they do there works. And so maybe in California, instead of just, I don't know, giving drug addicts more needles and hoping that one day they just stop, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, maybe that's not the smartest approach. Maybe there's better ways of going about it. And maybe it's not just one approach, it's multiple approaches at the same time. So I know we're kind of going on a different, different place, but I think ultimately the same thing with school loans. You know, you can't, even if I was all for just paying off everybody's student loans, we'll be in the same position 15, 20 years from now. So one of the things I'm noticing is more and more people my age in the millennial generation, people in their early 30s, mid 30s, people who, who did that approach, who did go to college, who did come out with these uh, huge loans. Um, we tend to be the ones now, I think, who are cautioning the next generation that, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't rush right <laughs> into do doing it. this. And, you know, there are other ways, like you can get an education, like in one of our last, in our last episode, I was just talking about how, you know, anyone can take a couple thousand dollars and invest in a really solid, awesome library of their own and self-educate and get just as good, if not a better education than they could if they dropped multiple thousands, you know, on college. So I think things are shifting for sure. And I'm seeing more and more people my age from our generation recommend to people and say, well, hey, like you can pursue education and learn without going to college, but also there's nothing wrong with going to a trade school. There's nothing wrong with picking up a skill that might not be considered a scholarly skill. Not everyone also is suited for academia. This is another thing that I've realize later in life is like this broad sweeping approach to just telling all kids they all need to go to college and enter academia and if you don't you are somehow not as like smart or important in society i think is the wrong approach i agree with you and actually that's um that's one reason i didn't go to college i didn't feel comfortable going to college hmm. I, you know i didn't feel confident going to college and my focus was computers i'm in it okay. So I went to a trade school. It wasn't the greatest trade school in the world, but it did help uh, eventually. It took a while, but it helped eventually to get my foot in the door and my career grew from there. So, you know, my career has taken off and I've worked in positions with people who have computer science degrees with, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debt. And I, you know, I had some student loan debt, but not nearly as much as them that uh, I just lazily paid off. So. It's something that I'm actually kind of glad I listened to myself and my own insecurity. Because even today, when I think back about it, I'm like, I'm glad I didn't go. You know, I'm sure there's great experiences with going to college. Yeah. You know, it's, no, for it's, real. I don't, I don't regret it for sure. And you know, I do have a lot of very formative, important memories from that time period. Networking. I met a lot of cool people. I had some great professors. They weren't all great. 
uh, I wouldn't trade it, you know, like it, it is what it is. Like I have to that yeah. the experience, you know, but just in hindsight, looking at it. Yeah. I mean, it is hard to, to not think, well, I didn't have to do that. I could have taken another route and I would probably be just as voracious and smart and all that stuff without having to have you know, put myself through that. But it is what it is, right? Yeah. Water under the bridge. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to pivot a bit into your book, actually. I have not read it yet, but I am definitely going to get a copy and check it out. Uh, tell us, what, what is the premise of this book? Give me your sales pitch if you were to try to sell the book to someone. <laughs> your elevator your, pitch. Yeah, elevator pitch. Like, say you had, you know, just a couple minutes and you just met me and you're like, hey, this is my book. This is what it's about. What yeah. What is a black victim to black victor about? Um, well... It's about a lot of things, but uh, the elevator pitch, it's, it's a book that's giving social commentary about race while, while using my personal story as an example as to what I think is wrong with the discussion of race and um, what is truly affecting Black Americans. That's my quick pitch. Okay, so, <laughs> so it's like part memoir. Yeah. Part and so what is what is the premise like what do you what do you um what is the message you're trying to get across to people about race right now in america and and how you view your own race i guess so um one of the important chapters is called a gap in honesty um and it's because i feel like the conversation around race isn't very honest it's rhetoric driven um it's emotionally driven, but it's not honest. You know, so I talk about crime stats. You know, we're not supposed to talk about crime stats. It gets, you say, oh, that's what white supremacists do. Yeah, some of them do, but so what? It's still true. Mm -hmm. And so why are we avoiding the truth? We need to be more honest. If we're gonna have this deeper look into, into race and, and discussing it, we have to be honest with very uncomfortable things that's how you solve things. But you have to be honest with care and love. And so, you know, I've had someone describe my book as talking about very difficult things with my my arm around their shoulder, right? Okay. Uh, and that's, that's exactly what I was aiming for, um, was to be, be able to, to be like a, a, an empathetic person, and also be to have the reader be like very sympathetic of what I went through and understand where my, where my perspective is and why I say what I say, you know, it doesn't come from a place of like, you know, I learned from this person, this person, and they told me this, so now I'm repeating what they say. It's coming from lived experience, but not just lived experience. Like, uh, you know, I went through some stuff. I've lived in multiple States and multiple towns within these States. I've met all different types of people of all different ethnicities. And my conclusion is that shitty people come in all colors. It's true. You know? So, you know, for me, the race conversation has been used as a method to manipulate people, all people, not just black people, everybody. So, you know, if we were to talk about what is the problem, because we're talking about addressing problems, the number one problem is family, you know, the single parenthood statistics are real. They are. They mean something. You know, and it doesn't, so, it doesn't 
just affect the black community. You know, it, yeah. it, the increase in fatherlessness is a trend that's been happening across the country and in, in all demographics. So, exactly, and that's actually the way I write it is actually in a way that it is relatable, because there are times that I write and I'm saying black, and there's times I don't. Right, and I do that purposefully because I want people to understand that when I'm talking about um, uh, like childhood development or interpersonal relationships between men and women, that doesn't matter what you look like or where you're from. You know, so this is why it's important. So I don't need to add the black caveat to childhood development. It's childhood development. There's, we're not special unicorns. We're no. We're human beings just like anybody else. So not having that parental figure within your household, not having that fatherly figure within the household means something. It doesn't just mean something as far as a symbol that you have a nuclear family and then everything is fine. Like, no, a, a proper household with both parents means something in the means of childhood development, in the means of learning from a young man as to what a man is supposed to look like. He's modeling himself after, after his father most of the time. The most important parental figure uh, for a child tends to be the same-sex parent. So for young men who are looking to grow into something and not have that figure there, they're gonna look elsewhere. And no one is gonna care more than your parent. So we have to talk about missing that half uh, that the children are, are experiencing. And like you said, it's not just black Americans, it's disproportionately higher for us. Yeah. And you know, some people would say we're the canary in the coal mine um, when it comes to single parenthood, but it's increasing all over the place. I talk to people all the time from broken homes uh, who are white. Um, I actually, one of the stories in the book, I, I do talk, talk about someone um, who's in his seventies never knew his father, you know, since to this day, he, he has no idea who he is. And me and him were able to connect over that same kind of situation. Cause I grew up without my father in my life. I knew who my father was, but he had no interest. And so we both went through the same thing. I moved a lot. He moved a lot. He moved from country to country, right? Um, he turned to alcohol. I didn't, but I self-loathed, you know, I went through depression. He went through depression. You know, we went through the same type of things because we were struggling to figure out who we were. He went into the military because he was lost. You know, I was able to turn to certain things and I, you know, I struggled. My 20s were a struggle of figuring out who I am. Um, I had my son at the age of 21. And so a, a lot of what, a lot of what I came to the conclusion and understanding how important uh, you know, having that father figure, especially for young men within their life, was looking at my son and understanding how important I've become for my son, or not become, but always have been for my son. You know, it took it took some time to fully see that, um, but I was always there. You know, the one thing I told myself becoming a new father was that I never wanted to be my father. Yeah. Yeah, I think everybody aims to improve upon their experience. No, I mean, I don't think that's true. <laughs> you don't think <laughs> Unfortunately, no. 
you know, <laughs> so, some people grow up and they become exactly like the abusive parent, or worse. you know, that or worse that treated them that way. Some people, they grow up and, and they're, they're like, that's everything that I don't want to be. I want to be the opposite of that. So, well, I can, I can kind of explain that. So, and I'm speaking, uh, granted, I'm not, a, I'm not a therapist or a psychologist or anything like that. I will note, I have had a psychologist read my book and the times where I'm talking about psychology and childhood development, they said I'm on point. So I'll just put that out there. The reason why people are like that, I, like you said, like, oh, most people want to become better than their previous parent, but he's actually kind of right. Most people tend to turn into what they grew up around. Um, I see it like this. I know it sounds bad. I always use this analogy, but you guys are literally smoking in front of me. <laughs> Do it. Um, smoking doesn't guarantee that you'll get lung cancer, but you increase your likeliness of getting lung cancer by smoking, right? So the way I see it is I could have turned out like my father, right? I'm more likely to have turned out like my father, right? But I didn't. However, it is not uncommon, the you know percentage-wise, you are more likely to become um, either like the parent who who provided for you, or become like the parent who was missing in your life. But you're more likely to repeat the behavior or repeat the environment that you grew up in. the The thing about humans is that all we do is repeat. There's very little that is original about us. We we learn from different people, we put it together, and we repeat and especially behavior patterns. So I don't know if you guys, um, do you guys, both of you have relationships with your fathers? Yes, your yeah. Okay. Has there, has there ever been a mannerism that someone pointed out that you do exactly like your father? Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, not pointed out, but I've noticed that, unfortunately. You've noticed it. So, <laughs> and that's a thing that someone probably had to like, either you had to realize or someone had to point out, but you didn't consciously repeat what they did. You see, and that's exactly what I'm saying. Now, you know, extrapolate that to an environment. If you grow up in a house that's abusive, you become desensitized to it, you repeat the behavior of the abuser, even if you were abused, and even if you didn't like the abuse. You know, we are habitual when it comes to repeating behavior. So, you know, what I'm trying to address is bringing the family back together in a healthy way and valuing the family. Because if children are going to repeat the behavior, you want them to repeat the behavior of someone who is healthy. The reason that gangs can thrive is because children always see, uh, children are always in, uh, seeking approval and they're seeking to re repeat the behavior of someone that they can model themselves after. Yep. Exactly. You know, so especially, I, I talk about it a lot for young men. It's the same thing for young women, but um, you know, for young men, there is something about having a purpose in life. And I, I call the father like your purpose compass. You know, he's supposed to be able to help guide you in a direction that helps to uh, fulfill your purpose, or at least to, to guide you in a place that, that says, this direction may not be for you, but this direction may be, right? But he's supposed to help guide you through life, to be there for you, to understand that you don't have to suffer to be on a, on a plane or at least to suffer to be in a direction that is healthy for you. So 
ultimately, like my main goal for most things that I, I do and I talk about is the restoration of family and advocating for the nuclear family, but a healthy nuclear family. This is not a mystery too. That that's the whole thing about this subject is this should be common sense. Um, <laughs> but there there's even science to back up what you're saying too. I you know I know that from I can't pull them up off the top of my head, but I've seen studies about comparing you know, two parent households to single parent households. And we know statistically speaking that two parent households, those children do have a higher chance of succeeding in all areas of life. So it's not, it's not yeah. a grand mystery, you know? And despite income. Yes. Despite income. Yes. So that, that, and that's another thing that people overlook. They always think, well, economically, like, no, despite income, you know, the child who makes less with two parents versus the child who grew up in a single parent home that had a higher income level, statistically, that child who made less has a greater likeliness of having a successful future to overcome that hurdle. And, and yeah, so I just wanted to add that in. Well, that's, I'm glad you added that because that gets into the next subject that I wanted to go into, which was um, the, the victim mentality, I like to call it. And this is, I think, you know, aside from the family unit and those issues, I think this is the, the main thing holding back all minority groups in a sense, not just black folks, but LGBT, um, you know, any minority group. This this idea of there's, there's always going to be someone above you, right, who is more privileged, who has more access to opportunities and this and this and that, and that you are inherently a victim. You are born disadvantaged to certain people. Um, yeah. Do you think that this is a damaging thing to teach young folks? And I'm assuming your answer is going to be yes, because I'm assuming that that's kind of what <laughs> revolves around. But I'm going to ask you anyway, do you think this is a damaging thing to teach young folks that they are victims inherently because, say, they are gay or black or, you know, some non-white straight group? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's it's disempowering. I think that's the best word to kind of use when it comes to having a victim mindset. You are your only hurdle at that point. No one needs to put chains on you if you don't think you can escape anyways. So that is ultimately what I'm trying to fight back against. I don't think people should look at themselves that way. Like they're inevitably disadvantaged. Um, and it's even more troubling when people have some success, but still lean on that victim ideology. You know, that one moment where their life had some inconvenience was because of X group that they're associated with. Um, rather than saying, that sucked, but I can keep moving forward and, and I don't need to harp on it. So, yeah, victim, vic the victim mentality is not only disempowering, but it, the way I see it, it you know, it's like a flaw um, or like in, in IT terms, it's an exploit. You know, it's an exploit for people to manipulate you and take advantage of you and direct you whichever way they want because you're not directing yourself. And that's ultimately what I'm trying to, to point out in the book. The more you think of yourself as a victim, the more you're looking for someone to save you because you're not empowered at that point. And so if there is one chapter where I am talking about the savior mentality because that's also uh, important to highlight. Um, and just a little uh, note, I am working on a second book and it is talking 
primarily about the savior complex. Okay. So the, like books, the two books. The allies. <laughs> all of it. Okay. All of it. Um, I'm still working on it. It's still early on, but I want to break it down. If I do this right, there's no other book like it. Put it like that. Okay. Um, but I want to break down the savior complex and uh, and discuss the codependency, uh, but the, the mentality. And in, in this book, I kind of talk about how they're codependent as well. You know, victims need saviors, saviors need victims. That's true. But even deeper than that, the the victims despise having, despise needing a savior, and the saviors hate their victims. <laughs> it's a very toxic type of relationship. You know, so when you're constantly helping someone and having to save them, it looks good for you, but you hate you hate that person. You know, it's it's like ah, I'll do it for you because it makes me look good, but I don't really respect you. I don't really like you. And so that's the part of the, you know, people like to say the white savior complex, but just having the savior complex in general, that is the other component to it because they don't really care about the person that you're saving when they're in that particular mode. It's about them. Yeah. How it's, does it make it's about them how they feel? Yeah. How does it make them look? How does that's, it make that's them feel? The other thing, you know, this this idea of virtue signaling of, you know, only only yeah. doing something so, you know, other people see it and it makes you look good in, in the public yes. eye. But I, 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 will... I find the allyship stuff to be very patronizing in my personal <laughs> opinion because it feels like coddling, like they're they're treating us as minorities, like like we're little babies, like we need to have our hands hold and a pat on the back. And I'm so sorry, <laughs> it's so hard for you to be a minority. And it's just, I'm like, all right, I, I get it, Karen. Like, okay, like I'm fine. You don't, <laughs> we Karen. You can say gay, Karen. It's fine. Like I'm fine. DeSantis didn't bust down the door and come for me. <laughs> okay, like you can you can stop crying. Yeah, but it also, uh, and I'll, I'll go into it in my in my new book. But it's not just those people. It's not just the Karens who are obviously narcissists. But it's also uh, another subgroup. So uh, the way I kind of see it, just from examining it, there's two groups. There's what you just call the Karen, the narcissist. Those are, those are people who are obvious. But the second subgroup are the people who are highly empathetic, who get, I don't want to say dragged, but who get enticed into the savior mentality. They are there because they really think that they're going to help by being, uh, by becoming the Karen. They, they're enticed by thinking that if I just do this one thing, that I really will help someone. So they're the true believers. Yeah, they mean being, well. They mean well, right, exactly. That's the best way to put it. They mean well, but they're still condescending, right? And I've personally seen this happen, uh, and I, I'm, I'm gonna be detailing it in the book, but I've personally seen this happen with a personal friend of mine who, you know, she, she was highly empathetic she maybe leaned on being more of like feministy. That's fine, but she wasn't like a hardcore purple hair, you know, shaved hair <laughs> or anything like that. But you know, she leaned on it, and that's fine. And we would have these discussions about race and stuff like that. That wasn't woke. As a matter of fact, I remember we used to laugh at the woke, right? And then George Floyd, and and I remember having uh, it was one of our last, or if not the last conversation we had. 
over the phone. She said, well, I listen to, to black voices. And I'm thinking to myself, you do realize I'm black. And I actually, actually, I think I vocalized that. I was like, you know I'm black, right? Like I have an opinion too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it was just, it was dumbfounding because this is someone who was a personal friend. I knew her family, spent holidays with each other. She wasn't just an acquaintance. And then all of a sudden, it was like this wave of uh, saviorism that, that ripped through the country for people who were highly empathetic, for people who watched that video of a knee on the neck and just forgot everything that they ever knew to say, I'm, I'm doubting myself. That's my dog. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're doubting themselves that they're, they're blind to, to seeing something um, that they weren't blind to, you know, but they, they've now doubted themselves. They believe that they actually need to do something now, you know, and it's, it's a shame. But the thing about it is that it wasn't just my friend. It's countless people. You guys probably know people like this, you know, and, and I wanted to talk about that, the, the people who were enticed to become this, this particular person. Yeah, no, it sounds very interesting. Uh, we know a lot of people that we kind of dissociated with over the lockdowns and stuff. I lost a lot of friends over that uh, particular issue. Um, so it was a lot of concurrent stuff with the nah, lockdowns. I, I definitely, I had some people also distance from me for criticizing BLM and, and all of that. And during the summer of riots. We were critical and, of the riots. Yeah, yeah, same. But I think yeah. uh, Adam's correct. You know, the, the George Floyd incident was a very powerful piece of propaganda in the way that it was spun. And I also think that it was deliberate in meaning in the sense that how it was used to rip the country apart using this issue. Yeah, I, I agree as well. You know, it's weird sometimes because Without George Floyd, I don't know if I'd be sitting here talking to you. So, you know, there's always something that comes from yeah. terrible situations. But um, that, you know, it was one of the reasons why I decided to finally say something. Okay. So you know, before, before that, you weren't really as politically outspoken, you would say, publicly. I wasn't outspoken at all. Okay. You know, I, I, that's what I'm saying. I am, I'm a culture war junkie as a viewer. Okay. And so I've been, I've been taking all this stuff in, watching, listening to podcasts, uh, you know, going on live streams and just watching and consuming and learning, hearing different perspectives, but it was all for me. Um, maybe some of my closest friends knew how I, how I felt. And even for me, it was more of a transition that was happening within the past, you know, three to four years of just growing and learning and, and reevaluating uh, my thoughts on politics, but um, no, I didn't felt it was, I didn't felt the need to go on Facebook and rant about politics or anything like that because it was always unproductive when I see it, when people do it. So I, I kept it to myself. I'm a relatively private person, um, but in order for me to share the message, share how I really feel and to share my personal story with people, I had to you know, scrap all that and open up, but I just do it in a, in a smart way, in a way that's comfortable for me. Totally. I think this is a good 
a good place to kind of go into your one of your other articles, which was uh, debunking Sonny Hostin's claim that black Republicans are an oxymoron. And, you know, you discussed your friend and, you know, how George Floyd, she all, you know, shifted after that and have other people in your life began, you know, begun to look at you differently since you've come out more as politically. But are are you conservative? Are you Republican? Do you want to explain what the, the title means there, Daniel? Well, first, I wanted to ask Adam if he would identify himself as a Republican or, or a conservative. <laughs> so I am not a Republican. Uh, I would identify myself as an independent. Okay. I am. What's that? We're the same. Very much so. Registered independent. Yeah. Registered independent. Um, these days, I would probably be more in line with the Republican Party. Uh, but politics change, sanity changes. Uh, so who knows, in 10 years, it might be the Democrats who sound more sane than the Republicans. Um, but as far as my value system, um, I've become more conservative-minded in my value system. Um, I've become more appreciative of religion, um, more family-oriented, obviously with the book. Um, and so, yeah, in some ways I am socially conservative. Uh, politically, I don't know where I'm at, somewhere in the middle. Um, distrusting of establishment figures, kind of a libertarian, uh, but appreciative of, you know, normalcy and, and value systems. So, you know, it's always interesting, like, you know, people say, you know, black conservative, I'll accept it because I am socially conservative. But I honestly don't know exactly where I lie, and I kind of like that. I kind of like being ambiguous. Same. Um, <laughs> I hate like most. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of yeah. like sometimes when some people on the right think I'm on the left, and then sometimes, you know, when people on the left think I'm on the right, and I'm just like, all right, be confused, you know. Yeah. <laughs> this is what it is. But the reason yeah. I ask this is, you know, to kind of lead into this this subject of how the woke tend to dismiss any minority voice. And it doesn't even matter if you're a conservative or a Republican. That's kind of the point here. Any minority voice that diverts in any way from this woke Democrat type narrative that, that we're seeing. And it doesn't matter if you're an independent or libertarian. If you divert from that in any way, if you say, well, hey, maybe you should take more responsibility for yourself and stop walking around thinking like you're a victim all the time, you are immediately pigeonholed as that. You are a conservative, you're a Trumper. And, and I guess I wanted to bring this up because... I think it's sad that the position that, for example, you should take responsibility for yourself is now considered a, a strictly conservative Republican position. And it's like, if you say that in any way, in any capacity, you are automatically, you're just, you're a conservative Republican. God forbid we tell people to take responsibility for themselves. And something as simple right. as that. No, I agree with you. As a matter of fact, um, you know, the way I wrote the article is actually coming from the place of someone well, I mean, because I am, I'm, I'm a former liberal and I still believe in certain liberal values. I'm, I'm hardened in, in my belief in free speech. I've never changed my position. Many of the positions when I consider myself a liberal, I haven't really changed. I would say the, the only extreme position I have, I am absolutely 100% pro-life, no exceptions. So that that's the only position that I've just done a complete change. Okay. You know, from someone who was pro-choice and just saying, you know, 
it, it's her choice. She can do whatever she wants. So that's other than that, that I'm pretty much the same person, maybe just expanded on how I see freedom um, and, and, and things of that nature. But, you know, I I'm arguing from the, the perspective of being on the left against Sonny Huston because she is espousing progressive leftist kind of talking points. Yeah, she had this. So, so just for people who don't yeah. know, Sunny Hostin is a, a host on The View. It's that like morning daytime talk show where the, the ladies come together and they give really bad liberal opinions. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what she did was she said, quote, I don't understand black Republicans and said that a black Republican is a, quote, an oxymoron. <laughs> Because apparently in her world, there's it's not possible that yeah. black Republicans or black conservatives exist, which is, you know, we saw this the same thing with Joe Biden during the campaign. Yeah. You know, he he came out and said something. I can't. It was like, you're not you're not black if you don't vote for me. You ain't black if you don't vote for <laughs> Joe Biden. I just I couldn't believe it. And, you know, he got a total pass on that from the media. Nobody dragged him. Nobody said a bad word about him. So, Adam, did you vote for Joe Biden? I did not. And actually, to be honest, oh, because you're not black anymore. He, I just need to inform you. He took that. it from you. Have you seen this cartoon? <laughs> yes. Drained all the melon. Actually, shout out to G, G Prime 85. I actually Shout-out got to meet him George. in person. Yes, we have not yet, but uh, we had him, he was one of our first guests. We're like, show. we're arranging a date soon. We're going to hang out. <laughs> we're going to come out. in here and like talk with us in person, but he was. Uh, our guest on, I think, episode 18? Something like that. Yeah, so he was one of our earliest guests, which is awesome because at the time, like, no one was listening to the show. No one knew who we are, and it was very flattering and sweet of him to agree to come on and talk to us. So shout out to George. Love you, man. He just has this way of really encapsulating situations in four panels that just, it really... (laughs) You people either love his work and just can't get enough of him, or they despise they him. Him, like recently, there was a whole thing on Reddit where they were like, you know, a bunch of people are saying the most horrible things that I don't want to repeat here, but you know, plotting violence or implying that violence, you know, should be visited upon him. It was crazy. I just love his work. Well, that, that, this yeah. can lead into something too. So, have you received any like really serious backlash for some of your views? Um, like any threats, things like that. No, no, that's good. I really haven't. That's reassuring. Um, and see, that's the thing. Um, I mean, for one, I'm not famous or anything like that. Um, I'm famous, getting less, not Adam. yet, Adam. <laughs> um, I don't even know if I want to be famous to be honest. Yeah, with I don't either. You don't. <laughs> you really don't. <laughs> I would like to have some notoriety and an appreciation more so for my writing than anything else. But um, I think that I've thought, I've thought a lot about this before I even entered being more public about how I feel about certain things. And I'm like, you guys can hear, I'm pretty mild mannered. I'm not very like rhetoric driven uh, you know, I don't really fall on anybody's side per se. Um, I don't hate Trump. I don't think he's a god either. You know, so you know, I, I'm just I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, and I'm I'm not ideologically driven, and I don't want to antagonize people. So I always try to 
I always try to say things that's not very antagonistic. Um, I try to say things about how I feel, but I, I think words are important and how you say certain things are important. So you can say many things that might sound offensive uh, if you say it wrong, but if you say it in the proper proper way, it won't be as bad. I think for um, some people, though, it really doesn't matter how you say something, man. Like, uh, like for example, you said you don't hate Trump. Like, I know people who that will piss off. It's not enough that you, like, that you don't like him, for example. You have to actively hate him. <laughs> and if you're not actively <laughs> hating him, you are part of the problem <laughs> just to these people. I mean, listen, I've... I think, you know, I've definitely been on, on Twitter long enough where someone's called me a coon or something like that. Oh, God. Um, but I just don't value the opinions of strangers like that. Exactly. Yeah. Why, why should you? I mean, if, especially now that this, this whole interesting thing with Elon and the deal being put on hold is because they're trying to ascertain how, what percentage of Twitter users are genuine, actual people and what percentage are bots or duplicate accounts or, you know, AI scripts or who knows what. It's a good question. Uh, and so what we're going to, I guess we will see in the future, in the short term future, you know, how that answer comes out. They've always historically said, you know, 5% or less. But uh, with the shenanigans that have been going on over there recently, especially since, you know, the, the numbers of followers have changed and people are coming back. It's uh, it, it's very shady what's going on over there, and it's probably likely that there are some not proper business practices being engaged in over at Twitter. Yeah. Uh, so we'll have to see what happens there. It's definitely a lot. I of mean, content. I think the people who've called me coons definitely aren't bots. Uh, I'll say that, but <laughs> but I think I, I have certain rules, uh, especially when it comes to places like Twitter, which is very very. Uh, polarizing, hyper, hyper political. Um, I don't argue with people. I just yeah. don't argue with people. Yeah, your mental hygiene is very important. And I don't think, yeah. people, you know, unless, like you're taking it seriously. You understand, you know, that there are, you know, certain traps that come with this place. Yeah. Like you yeah. can fall into a back and forth for hours and hours and have, you know, really negative experience. Whereas it, that's something I agree with. Like, I think arguing with people, beyond a line or two not worth your time yeah, if you can't let it go just lock very off. i'm a big fan of the mute and the block functions <laughs> so i mean we we were talking to someone recently i'm not going to name who he is but he was telling us about someone else who's pretty notable in the uh political commentary sphere and how this person had to basically back off they had to like leave twitter completely because they found it was impossible for them to not respond and you know they had to respond to everything and they had to constantly like it was like a version yeah, of ocd where anytime of, somebody was talking about you about you had them to know about it they had to correct, correct what they, anything this strangers wrong. you know perception to you know do i guess control how social media is very dangerous yeah. for somebody with that kind of tech and it's like you look you can't <laughs> control what people are going to say about you you can't answer every single comment and do damage control to try to you know to control perception yes. of you and this and that. And if you're obsessed with it in that way and you find you just can't ignore something, it's probably better to take a break and stay away from it for a bit. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, like, I remember in the very beginning uh, when I, I did, like, one of the first podcasts, I would look at the comments. Um, and I think one time I had a little back and forth with some guy in YouTube comments. 
Oh, it's the worst in the YouTube comments. So bad. The they, don't limit, they don't limit how long you can go. It's yeah. bad. Yeah. So I, I think after that, I was like, why am I, <laughs> why am I doing this? Right. So I think, I think you, you, you know, I try to be consistently self-aware. And so I'm like, what, what am I gaining from this? And so much of the actions of what I try to do is understanding what do I benefit from doing whatever action that I'm about to participate in? So what's the benefit of arguing with someone who will never change their mind, uh, who is just looking for a fight or looking for an argument? What's sort of benefit of engaging that with them? There is no benefit. Block yeah. them. Move on. You know, I, you know, I actually wrote an article for Rockspeak talking about how to have proper communication with people. Uh, a couple articles about proper communication when it comes to political discussion. Um, and one of the articles, I believe, is called like, you know, don't have bad faith conversations with people. Like just straight up, as soon as you have a conversation with someone when it comes to, let's say, politics, and as soon as it goes into a bad faith spot with ad hominems or whatever, just exit the conversation. You can even tell them, I've done this before. I'm like, you know what? This sounds like a bad faith conversation. Have a good day and just be done with it. So, you know, I've, I've put that to practice. I've not engaged with people um, because what's the point? Why, why, why am I going to get myself wrapped up into it? Um, so I, do, I try as much as possible to block people so I don't have to see it again or get involved. Or even like, like today I actually tweeted something about Eric Swalwell. And then his Eric Swalwell fanboys started coming up to <laughs> So I was like, screw it. I muted my own tweet. I just don't even care. Let them argue amongst themselves. I'm not going to go and look back at it. Who cares? Speaking, um, speaking of arguments. I actually wanted to backtrack a bit um, to the abortion issue. So you brought this up earlier. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that this was the area, I guess, politically you had the biggest shift in. Um, what was it about this subject or was there something that you came across or you were exposed to that changed in your mind how you view abortion? Um, so, me being pro-choice, I realized as I was as I was listening to different perspectives and and examining why I believe certain things, why I feel a certain way about certain things, I realized my pro-choice stance stood from my political affiliation rather than my moral position. Um, in the book, I actually talk about um, abortion a little bit, a particular situation, but I'm talk I'm discussing morality. Um, one of my ex-girlfriends had an abortion and I didn't do anything about it. I didn't stop her. I said, it's your choice. It's up to you. And I probably was leaning in the direction of fear and, and not, not sure if I want this to go through. And she had the abortion. I took her there and she had it. And that sticks with me, you know, because as a father, I'm supposed to protect my child. And I didn't do that. And so, you know, as much as you know, I could be pro-choice and it's her choice, I felt a sense of guilt and she felt terrible too. You know, that's why I like this abortion discussion is troubling to me because even the old liberal position of, you know, safely we were rare, um, you know, it was just 
passively allowing this to happen, it's moved past that. It's moved past this is some sort of inherent right to, to kill a child. Whereas the old position, we never, we never like pretended that we weren't killing a child. Like that wasn't a thing. We understood what it is. And now we're arguing over the validity of life and where, where, you know, the cells, the clump of cells, and does it actually feel anything? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's like this semantic argument about something that is so plainfully obvious uh, just to appear like you're giving women some sort of uh, power. And that's, that's, that's the troubling thing. It's like, it's a power ring to kill your offspring. Like we're raising praying mantises or something. Yeah, and, and they can't say what it actually is, like you're saying here. That's one, it's a semantic thing. They, they seem to be trying to control perception of yeah. what this is. Instead of just, I would respect the, I think, pro-choice position more if the people who advocated for it were just straight up and said, I, you know, we're, it's killing kids. That's what we're doing. You have the right to kill your unborn child. Kill, use the word, kill but they try to avoid using the language to make it sound not as horrible as it actually is when you really get down to what what's what an abortion is, right? That That's what it is. Right, right exactly. And, you know, I have met other women who've had abortions. It's not, it's not a pleasant thing. Yeah. Um, there is a level of guilt. And then what will happen is people will say, well, they only feel guilty because society tells them to feel guilty about it. It's like... Nah, there's a biological thing. <laughs> there is yeah, a biological thing. Um, and I, I want to say one of the things that, that pushed me over too, besides that, was actually looking at an aborted fetus. Uh, That'll do it. That'll do it. Yeah. And, and that's one of those things where it's kind of like, if public schools can, can show all types of crazy stuff, well, they need to show kids this. So they understand like, oh, that looks like a baby. Yeah, because it is one. Yeah. And here's what they do to, to abort. So it's not just something you show up and, you know, your belly gets smaller and everything's fine. You go home and have lunch. Like it's, it's something real. It impacts something. It impacts a life. So, you know, that's, that's most of the reason as to why I've, I've switched my position. Yeah, like, so we had Gothics on a, a couple months ago. I know you've been on Gothics channel before too, right? Yeah. And uh, she she was telling us how basically she was just like, I'm going to start using the word murder. I'm going to just start calling it that. Um, and I, I don't care how people react or, or how they see me. And, you know, I, I can understand why she takes that position, even though some might view that as an extreme position to take. You know, maybe she really is just calling it what it is. Again, it is a life. You are ending a life. You're you're killing something. So one could make the argument that that it is a form of murder. So yeah, but, yeah. yeah I had similar similar to you. I was very pro-choice uh, growing up, and it was only within the last couple of years I started to learn more about the practice and more specifically the business behind. Planned Parenthood and how they handle the remains and how a lot of that gets sold uh, to pharmaceutical companies for them to do research. They harvest the materials from the, especially the later term 
because the later the term, the more material that they can harvest and, and use for research purposes. But this is very valuable material. It's, you know, stem cells and all kinds of like unique uh, hormones and chemicals that only are ascertainable from, you know, the product of a human pregnancy. Right. And when I found out how much money they were making buying and selling these things on a per year basis, we're talking billions of dollars. So that blew my mind. And then like this whole idea now that we're even hearing more about after birth abortions, where now the mental health of the mother, you know, anywhere from seven days to 10 months after the birth, they're talking, you know, in the, I think in California and one bill in Virginia, that's um, that where they would, you know, theoretically deliver the baby and then, you know, I guess, you know, after, after it was born. I mean, that, that, that did it. I was like, you know what? I'm pro-life now. Like, forget about it. Like, I, you know, realistically, I feel like I'd be, I'd be comfortable with a compromise and, you know, nothing past the first trimester or something. But now I'm just, I've been so by, by how far the left has gone left. I'm like, you know what? Maybe we should, you know, overturn Roe v. Wade, kick it back to the states, and just, you know, let the states decide because that's probably how it should have been. Well, that, that's the thing too about all of this. I feel like quite a few of the people who are freaking out about the Roe v. Roe v. Wade situation don't even know what's going to happen. Don't even understand what that is. They don't understand that this was a federal thing that was, you know, being gotten rid of, and they're they're putting the power back into into the hands of the states. So, like you're mentioning. Right, California. They're trying to pass these bills for afterbirth abortions. Who knows? That might happen. That might become what happens in California because of Roe v. Wade being overturned. But at the same time, then we're going to see what's happening in Texas and places like that. And I think what's going to happen is you, you might just find, similar to what happened with the mandates, people are going to just start swapping around the country. You know, people who want you're going to have to move. Yeah. Who people who want to live in a state with more access to abortions are going to end up in places like California if it's that important to them. And then, you know, people who don't want to live in that type of environment and culture and feel like they're supporting abortions, they're, they're going to go to Texas and, and other states who are more against it. I agree with you. Um, I think there will also be and actually I, I knew someone and even and this is before I kind of had my. Uh, personal transition, but um, there was someone that I knew that accepted women into the state of New York from other states because certain states were, they had restrictions and it made it more difficult. They might have been later term or something like that. In New York, they could still have the abortion and they would take a man and bring him in for the abortion and give him a place to stay. Um, and they were part of, I think they were part of some sort of organization that, that did that. Hmm. Um, and I thought to myself, this doesn't feel right. Like, I remember, I remember thinking about that when they, they told them, they said it in a way like they're proud to, to do this and help, help girls. And I thought to myself, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right to fly in a woman to kill the baby something about it doesn't feel right and i think that that's going to be put on hyperdrive at some point yeah um you know places like new york and california are going to be just go farther to the left and say you know fuck it we'll murder your baby like we don't care yeah. <laughs> you know just just come here we'll pay for your stay matter of fact we'll pay for your abortion like tax-funded abortions for everybody 
So there, there's going to be places like that that's going to happen. Um, and it's just going to be a new market for the abortion scene. Maybe there's going to be an abortion housing scene, uh, you know, an abortion house of women who come in from other places to have abortions in California. Like, it sounds insane, but it's not that crazy compared to all the other stuff that's been going on. So, Airbnb partners with Planned Parenthood to bring you the Airbnb <laughs> abortion experience. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Brent, don't. I it's mean, gonna they, happen. They already Watch. have experiences on Airbnb. <laughs> they so. do. So I wanted to tie some of this also into what we were discussing earlier about the the victim mentality. And one of the things I noticed with the abortion discussion is the people who are very very pro abortion, you are just not allowed to talk about personal responsibility in regards to this subject. <laughs> you're just not. It's like you're yeah. you're horrible person. You hate women. You hate women's rights. It's like God forbid we want to have the discussion of well. What about sex? What about promiscuity? What about all these other contributing factors as to why we're having so many high rates of abortion? When does the personal responsibility of the woman and the man come into this? And should the consequence or one of those consequences be you're forced to carry a pregnancy to term? I, I don't know the correct answer to that, but I do know we have to have the discussion. We can't just ignore that there is a personal responsibility issue here. Like, People are just going around, they're sleeping with whoever, and, you know, women are having multiple abortions and they're using it as this sort of, like, get out of jail free card to escape the, you know, the consequences of their actions. And, you know, should we really continue this? I don't, I don't know, man. Um, part of me hates this particular session, not with you guys, but I'm just saying it in general, because it's, it's so, it's filled with horrible analogies, um, bad takes, just like it, and overly emotional. It's just dumb. It, yeah. This conversation is really not that deep, yet people take it in these places that it's just absolutely, just like you said, just say that you want to kill your baby, right? Just say it. Like, I kind of feel like it for guns. Like that more if you were just, you know, this is, this is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, to me, it's kind of similar to the gun situation. Like, yeah, I, I respect you want to protect your household. But, like, just say that you think guns are cool. Yeah. Like, there's nothing wrong with saying that guns are cool. I like you guns. just want to have one. <laughs> All right. Cool with that. Don't pretend that you need <laughs> this, this machine gun to protect your family. You probably don't. But you think guns are cool and it'll do the job. That's fine. I'm cool with that. Um, I feel the same way about the abortion discussion. Like, just say that you want to do it by avoiding the myriad of other ways to prevent to getting that point. Like why, why? Like, that's why even was saying like forced to come to term, <laughs> like it's, it's not like they just woke up one day, like, <laughs> Like the way we talk about abortion, view it though they view it as like you are going to force me to carry this pregnancy. It's like wow, you didn't do anything, I guess, right? You didn't, uh, you didn't open your legs and do anything. The pregnancy okay. fairy the visited you. The pregnancy just night. happened, and now you were forced. The immaculate conception. Yeah. Even worse, it's like the movie Saw. 
Like they just woke up from, you know, from being unconscious right. and they're now strapped to a baby. And the boy says, oh, no. I've this baby for nine months. <laughs> <laughs> no! Oh! Oh, That's going to so make cool. a really good clip. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it, but you're right. I think people like get really dumb with the subject and I think <laughs> it's the emotional thing with it and I think yeah. you know women in particular they they are so used to things being this way that they just I think they don't even think about it I think a lot of women don't don't even think about yeah, and also the, the, the language and abortion framing, is you know? the framing like, is a little weird right so we talk about abortion rights we talk about women's rights when the, there is no, I mean, is there a right to the, to an abortion? And yeah. how would you even qualify that? I guess maybe under the first amendment and, you know, maybe. Yeah. Well, uh, what they all ignore though is, religious. is the baby. Yeah, well, exactly. That's like the baby, well, you know, they, and they love to say my body, my choice, but nobody wants to admit that the child has a body and the child should theoretically have a choice. And, you know, I would just presume that the default choice is that the child would not want to die yeah but yeah that that's a good point though is is the body of the child tends to be disregarded when people discuss this subject it's just you know the, the body, body of the woman the autonomy the rights and like you know i i get that there are circumstances that that are tragic where women are brutally and violently assaulted and pregnancies result but i don't think that's really like you know by by getting into the weeds on these like mm. these rare and specific circumstances that which have, aren't black and white themselves which, either. Yeah, true they're very very true like we read an article not that long ago brent but it was by a woman who was actually the result of a rape pregnancy right and she loved her life talked about how she was glad to be alive and didn't didn't you know look at it as something shameful and was glad that she wasn't aborted and was a pro-choice person so yeah it's it's just it's a it's a complicated issue when you make it complicated yeah. but when you really <laughs> boil it down it's like you're killing your baby and like i get it you know and the, sometimes i watched we watched uh the stream on saturday and it was like uh christian watson and he was jumping around to a bunch of other protests you know you know pro-abortion pro-choice uh protests and this one woman was just like so you know, excited to talk about how she has a career and she's got two loving kids and she's got a big, fabulous house and she's got a loving and she has all the things that she, you know, the reason that she has all that is because she had the choice to murder her child. Well, she didn't when put it she, that way. Well, she didn't put it that way. But and that's basically, you know, what she said is like, she's like, I have all this stuff yeah. because I had the choice to do this. And it's just know. like, lady, do you hear yourself? So you're literally saying like. You sacrificed your unborn yeah. child to your future materialistic financial <laughs> success and happiness. It just, it sounds it's, weird to it me. It sounds really crazy. Yes, when you put it that way. Like, look, the lavish yeah. lifestyle I live. I have all of this yeah, Of course she was like, you know, I LA living in California. And I'm just. Yeah. Well, this is, this is part of the problem with feminism. I, I feel that, and I actually write about it in, the, in my book a bit about feminism. Um, but feminism hates women, point blank. Uh, it mistreats women and it turns them into narcissists. Uh, it makes everything about them, every bad circumstance is about them, every good circumstance is because they're a woman. Um, and so it... And listen, if there was if there was a particular ideology that did the same thing for men, I would call it out too. 
the difference is that we have catered to women. This is our society now. They, and we're, we're post me too. Um, and that's another aspect to it as well, but it was already in that direction before me too. So, you know, we've basically said that women have absolute autonomy to do whatever they want. You know, you cannot criticize, you cannot put personal responsibility on them because, well, listen, I had no choice. You know, you can legitimize everything. Um, so when you bring up contraception, like, well, what about the man? Well, stop deflecting. What about you? And so this is part of the problem when it comes to feminism, because feminism doesn't hold women accountable and it makes them reckless. It makes them unaccountable and we're supposed to treat them like equals. And so the way I see it is I'm all for equality. I'm all for the equality of good things and the equality of bad things. So, you know, sometimes you screw up and you got to be accountable for your screw up. That's part of equality. It doesn't matter what you look like. And so if a man impregnates a woman and he used to come to me and say, man, I impregnated this woman, blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, you got to be there. You got to take care of that kid. Like, what are you going to do? And I just, I don't think it's equal to be like, well, I get to obfuscate, you know, my responsibility by destroying a body and taking the life just so I don't have to be accountable for my own doing. And I think that is detrimental to women because <laughs> my wife just came up. Uh, I think that is detrimental uh, to, to allow women to, to behave like that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's uh, the, the the it's weird because the one thing that we've seen a lot of the a lot of the institutions and ideologies almost have come to become the opposite of what they claim. You know, we see Antifa, for example, running around in the streets behaving as like you know actual like you know jackbooted fascists, and we have feminism, which has become dominated by intersectionality and now trans rights. So it's actually become, you know, the, the, it's, it's started to encroach on actual women's spaces, you know, whether it's sports or bathrooms or even, you know, the word women. You know, we see a lot of, a lot of time that this argument being made that trans women are women, which I just I find very disingenuous in terms of an argument. But we see this uh, constantly and it, it's coming through, you know, a lot of it is coming through other, you know, other women who are pushing the stuff, which is it's just so mind blowing. But again, I think it's it's a weaponized form of uh, empathy and compassion. You know, people have natural, normal humans have natural uh, tendencies towards compassion and empathy. And it's very easy to hijack those natural, normal, healthy, uh, emotional responses to situations if you know how to push the triggers, if you know how to beat on that victim drum and stir up that programming in people. Let me also just bring up the general hypocrisy that I'm noticing from a lot of these folks who are rah, rah, rah right now about Roe v. Wade, but were pro-mandates. And I find the contradiction there. <laughs> my body, my choice. Yes, except, it's like, all, let me stick this needle in your yes, arm. It's like all of a sudden. the full force of the government. All of a sudden you care about bodily autonomy <laughs> all of a and all of a sudden you know what a woman is exactly. <laughs> Very interesting that. Um, hey, give me one second. My wife just came in. I'm just gonna go for her. it. Gotcha. This is the dangerous rhetoric ASMR experience.
via PayPal, Venmo, and Cash App at Sire2067. That's C-Y-R-E-2067. If we ever vanish from this platform, you can always find us at www.dangerousrhetoric.com. All right, we are back. So the last subject I wanted to talk to you about before we conclude today's episode is critical race theory, or CRT. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam, you're a black man, right? What, <laughs> what do you think of critical race theory? What is your opinion of this? There's a lot of debate right now in the country about it, and there's a lot of debate over like how do you even define what this is, because I've seen a lot of disagreement of defining what CRT is. Um. I think it's unproductive and it's essentially just neo-Marxism. I think that's the the short answer to it. I think it's ideologically driven and I'm not really one for, for being ideologically driven when it comes to how we interact with each other. Um, other than maybe religion, that's about it. And so for someone who is of faith, I think, critical race theory isn't the antithesis of how we should treat people. Um, So I reject it wholly. Now, the thing I hate, and once again, I I hate about the CRT conversation uh, when it was at at its height, is that the goalpost was constantly moved. But I will say this, critical race theory actually put the leftists on their back feet because then they had to try to defend it. And usually it's the other way around. So the, the, they tried to make some sort of semantic argument that it's not really critical race theory. Critical race theory is taught in law schools. Yeah. And they are technically correct. But it is critical practice. They're putting it into practice. Uh, practice. They're putting it into motion. They're putting it into curriculum. So, you know, I've written articles uh, talking about the gaslighting that they're doing by telling parents they're not seeing what they're seeing. You know, now I'm, I'm someone who tries to keep perspective. Obviously not every school in America is teaching stuff like this, it, it, but it is happening and it's happening in a wider scope than I think people, even, uh, even for people like us who are aware, realize it's not just happening in blue states or blue cities like New York City. It's happening in Indiana. It's happening in Illinois. It's happening in Wisconsin. It's happening in middle America. And, and it's even happening in red areas in middle America. So it's pervasive. Um, and much of it could have easily been predicted because those same screaming, raging kids who were in college were being prepped for this. Now they're, they're becoming school administrators. They're becoming teachers. They're entering the workforce, and now they've give, been given free reign to become society saviors. Um, and I think in many ways, and I'm actually finding out more and more that it was probably happening a bit, but it accelerated after George Floyd. Uh, they, it was carte blanche. We need to talk about race all the time, every which way, every way possible. Um, it doesn't matter if you're comfortable with it or if you're not. And it was an organized effort. Um, so I think that critical race theory is something that's anti-American. Um, and, you know, people will say, you know, Jim Crow is, 
and all this other stuff that happened in the past. But I think those those terrible things that happened were also anti-Americans. So you know, one bad thing doesn't doesn't mean that we should continue to have bad ideas. So what, we should what, would, you, what would you say to people mm -hmm. who say that you know what CRT is is just teaching the complete version of American history that that includes <laughs> things like Jim Crow and and slavery and and that. Well, you know, I'm going to actually say something probably isn't that popular, but I don't think you need to teach everything in public schools. It's a good point. You know, I always get kind of annoyed when people are like, how come I didn't learn this in public school? It's like, because you're not going to learn everything in public school. It's not even possible to. <laughs> it's like, why did I learn this obscure fact about uh, George Washington Carver? <laughs> like, Because <laughs> that's not like, what do you want? What do you like? I think people think public school is like the matrix. They could just upload stuff to your brain and you learn everything about one particular topic. But, you know, we can discuss race and we can discuss certain events in a healthy manner, in a, in a particular manner um, that is factual. Like, I don't, I, as much as people try to say the right doesn't want to talk about race, they don't care about discussing race it's how you talk about it yeah. and it's why you're talking about it like those are completely different things no one no one thinks that jim crow happened because uh you know it was about states rights or something like that like no one no one's under some illusion that it had, n it had nothing to do with race whatsoever it obviously did so you know we can discuss these things without making it ideologically driven. And that's the difference. You know, when you're having children line up in, in, uh, in what do they call it? Um, in, you know, privilege lines, you know, in yeah. a line of privilege based off of your skin or gender or whatever, um, you know, doing stuff like that, what's the purpose of that? Yeah, what I are you trying to illustrate? One video of these tiny kids man they were probably like first graders or kindergartner and they they were the teachers were having them do a sort of mock blm protest of some sort mm -hmm. and they had signs and they were marching in the hall and chanting black lives matter i'm like this is indoctrination you are using these kids as as ideological political tools props, props. yeah i think yeah and for that is pedophastry yes <laughs> you know i i actually I have a big problem. I don't care what political side it is. I have a big problem with using children for politics. Yeah. Um, you know, so go ahead. You know, bring your bring your kid to a Trump rally. I don't know if that's really appropriate. You know, I, I kind of have a problem with that. But fine, bring your kid. It's a family thing. You want to bring your kid. That's that's fine. But putting a microphone in front of your kid's mouth and having them repeat stuff that they just heard, I don't really like that. Yeah. I don't really like the, uh, you know, making your child chant Black Lives Matter either. I, like, I don't like using children to please the, the adults uh, to make them feel better about their ide ideology or about their, um, about their, their personal politics. Um, you know, even when I talk about, you know, my son is 16. I show him stuff, but I don't tell him what to think. And we just talk about it. It was like, does that make sense? And most of our conversations just kind of come from a place of just using logic. You know, he's, I'm pretty logical. I try to, I try to apply logic to, 
to things and remove emotion when it comes to politics. And he does the same thing. And he, you know, he's somewhere in the middle too. And I don't tell him what to think. I don't tell him that he has to say anything. You know, I personally identify as a Christian. My son didn't really grow up with religion. Yeah. You know, I want him to be able to, you know, I give him, I teach, I, I raised him in a way that is principled, but, you know, I'm not making my son uh, be like highly ideological. Um, you know, I want him to, to figure out the best direction he wants to go. And he's very much at that age. I would say, you know, 16, 17, 18 is around when you kind of start to figure out where you are politically. At least <laughs> for me, that was when I really started to think about those things more. But he's lucky to have a father like you to guide him in that way and to not just tell him what to think, but to give him the tools to think critically on his own, to make his own mind up. Yeah. I think one of the things that really, I don't want to say brought us together, because like we were apart, but really had him uh, understand that I have his back when it comes to all this stuff was during COVID. You know, as he is being locked down, you know, he is trying to figure out how scared should I be about this? And we had conversations and, he, you know, he, he'd be at his mother's and he would call me and we would talk about it. And he was like, what do you think about this whole COVID thing? And I would tell him how I thought. And he would be like, okay, I'm thinking the same thing. I feel better now, you know? And so I think, I think it's important to, to give your child the freedom to explore ideologically or politically or whatever, introduce them to information, introduce them to things, see what they think, see if it makes sense to them. Um, and just kind of allow it, allow it to go from there. All right, I have one more topic before we'll wrap it up yeah. because we're nearing seven here. And it's actually staying on this note here regarding your son, but I've heard from other black parents before where they've talked about this in regards to uh, dealing with police officers and they call it the, the talk. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming you know what that is. Have you had the talk with your son and what do you think about this? Do you think the talk is something very specific more to just black families or minority families? Or do you think that this is something that most parents tend to have with their children? Because I know me personally, I did have the talk of some sort. Uh, most friends that I know, I think, had some kind of talk with their parents about how to interact with police. But is it is it different amongst black parents? Do you think it is? I mean, I think it depends on the black parent. Um, you know, I we've had discussions about authority figures and stuff like that. Um, but it wasn't like, because you're, you know, you're black or anything like that. And, and to be honest, my son is mixed. You know, he could, if no one knew I was his father, he could probably pass, you know, for being white. Um, yeah, Cause he's pretty fair skin. But um, no, we, we had discussions about authority, you know, and, and what to do in certain situations. I mean, it, like I said, it really depends on the the parent. If they if they feel that the way to move around life is in a manner that is uh, geared towards being black, and as a black person, you have to do X, Y, and Z, and giving you know basically the the, the danger talk about being black, you know then. That's how they're going to talk to their kids. That's how they chose to talk to their kids. Um, but to me, 
that's victim rhetoric. You know, if someone was to come to me and ask me what are the cops like in the state of New Jersey, I'd, I'd tell them, you know, they're aggressive. You know, they're or they're you know, in certain places they're here, certain places they're there. I didn't realize you were you were in New Jersey. Yeah. Where in New Jersey are you? Uh, Central Jersey. We'll Central. put it like that. All right. I'm I'm from Elizabeth, Union County. We're, we're gonna have to talk afterwards. Yeah, my homies over here. I didn't realize you were from Jersey. I'm like, hey, we got a Jersey Jersey boy over here. <laughs> yeah, born and raised. We're in Manhattan right now, but that that is where okay. I'm from. I got my Garden State shirt on right here. <laughs> podcast. But um yeah, you know, the, the police topic is also a very touchy one. And you know, look, throughout my life I've been very critical of law enforcement. Um, you know, I've written articles and stuff about this when I was a teenager and one of my relatives is Frank Serpico. He was like a cousin of my grandmother. I don't know if you heard of him. Uh, in the 1970s, he exposed police corruption in the NYPD and they like set him up and try to get him killed. And they launched this whole investigation on them and stuff. So I've always been critical of the police, but I do find that over the last two years, I found myself in a position where I kind of had to like defend the cops a little bit. And I was yeah. not a position that I was used to being in, but just because of how inflamed all of the rhetoric was and, you know, people just acting like black folks are just being hunted around every corner by cops. And I just, I was not finding any data to match that. Um, and again, I'm not saying police brutality isn't an issue and that it's not out there. It does happen. And I think it's something we need to address, but the way the media overblew this issue, created a lot of unnecessary panic. It created an environment of demoralization amongst the police in cities, especially. And that's one of the reasons, aside from the lockdowns, that we've seen all this rise in crime and, and, and such. It didn't help minority communities. It just kind of made things worse. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that, and I also felt the same way. Like I felt myself like, in the position of defending people or defending things. And I didn't want to be in that position. I just wanted to talk about the concept itself. Um, well, I wouldn't say you know, either. Like I wasn't like defending the police, but it definitely brought me to a position where I felt I had to bring a bit of nuance to the conversation and remind yeah. people, like, look, remember those are people too, right? You know, cops are human beings. You know, there is someone behind that badge. They have a family to feed and all that stuff. And just to try to, reason people bring them back to a, a more grounded rational way of looking at this instead of just this black and white you know a cab or you know back the blue and those are like the two extremes and it's like no you can be in between those extremes you don't have to be so like blind black the blue you can criticize the cops but you also don't have to be the other extreme where they're all bad bastards and you know screw those pigs yeah Actually, you just reminded me, I, I was, I did a live stream one time and, and someone said, cops are trained to shoot to kill. I said, no, they're not. They're like, yeah, yeah, they're told to shoot to kill. I said, no, they're told to shoot for center mass. And they're also told to shoot to disable, right? Until the threat is disabled. Then they stop. If they were told to shoot to kill, they'd be letting off <laughs> rounds. And they'd be doing headshots and everything. Oh, really? Treating people like they're zombies. Like, they're not trained to shoot to kill. Why do you think they, they are able to capture mass shooters? Why do you, why do you think that? Because once they get someone to comply, they're no longer a threat. They will not shoot them. And if they do, you'll never see them as a police officer again, right? Because they'll be prosecuted. If, if it's something obvious that they, they're shooting someone who is obviously innocent and complying, 
So once you're shown to be a non-threat, then that's that's you know when it stops. You're not told to shoot to kill. Why would someone believe that? You know how many <laughs> you know how many people would be dead because of the cops? Probably they have guns every day. There's yeah. <laughs> there's hundreds of thousands of cops in this country. Like you people are insane if you think that cops are trained to shoot to kill. <laughs> yeah. It's well, like I saw a movement, just shoot, just shoot. Like, no, there's a I, you know, I pulled you over. Oh, what are you doing? Probably shouldn't be there. Yeah. So <laughs> one of the things too, I came to realize over the last two years personally is how quick and how, how readily we tend to comment on violence and, you know, police shooting incidents without any knowledge or real experience of violence and dealing with violent situations and, and violent people. And this is something I'm guilty of too, you know, when I was younger and, oh, the cop, oh, immediately they're just in the wrong, they shot them and they shouldn't have done that. And it's, we comment so quickly, but I don't think people understand when you're in violent situations, just how quickly things happen, how it changes your brain chemistry, literally, it changes your perception of time. It's just, it's so easy to comment from the sidelines and say, I would have did this, I, sh I would have shot here, I would have shot there, when you've never actually experienced an actual violent altercation. And I have, and they move like that, it's very fast. You know, you don't have a lot of time to think about these things. And the cops know that, you know, they know that. And you can give them training, but they're not superhumans. Yeah. Like they're, they're human. They're people. And so, they go from a scenario where everything could be fine and then all of a sudden they're fighting for their lives. So, you know, and they also have to keep that in the back of their head every time they pull someone over, every time they encounter someone. So they, they're always in a heightened sense of their own personal security, their partner's security, the, the public's safety. Um, and so, yeah, maybe some of them are a little bit on edge. Because they have to constantly live that way. Yeah, they're they're you know, people too. They, they are. They have bad yeah. days. Some of them are going to have personality disorders. Yeah. You know, there's could be any number of things that can happen. And here's the thing with the police topic really quick before we end is I think we could really make some progress dealing with police brutality, this specific issue, if we looked at it as a civil liberties issue first that affects anyone. And that police brutality is when it happens in, in a really wrong and moral way is wrong, period, no matter who it happens to. And we should react the same way, no matter who it happens to. But by making it about race, we're not actually addressing the root cause of what's happening here and, and trying to figure out, okay, how can we mitigate this or make, you know, police train them better, all that stuff. More people will care about it. It'll be less divisive. If we're just like, look, this affects all of us, whether you're white or black or whatever, we want our cops to serve us and we want them to treat us respectfully in our interactions, right? We don't want them to abuse us. And if we focused on it in that way as a civil liberties issue, maybe we could actually make some strides in regards to the cop. And the solution that they proffered was the defund solution, yeah. which is not going to work. Which is not going to work. We no. actually needed to fund them more. Yeah, we needed they need better more training, training yeah. more so, police. But, so. you know, as long as that funding is not going towards, I say, further militarizing to poli the police, because this is an issue Brent and I have always been critical of the police about, is, you know, militarizing them too much, too, I think is also an issue. So, yes, give them more funding. So you, but can't don't, just, you can't just yeah. throw money at the problem, yeah, right? It's don't not just lack of money. It's it's how you spend the yeah, money. Yeah, we don't need more armored vehicles and, and that sort of shit. They don't want to use them. We need better training. And okay, let's wrap it up. 
All right. So, Adam, tell everyone where they can find yes. you. What's your, your preferred finding places? Um, I'm very active on Twitter, uh, at wrong underscore speak. Um, on Instagram, same thing, at wrong underscore speak. Uh, people can also find me on Facebook, um, facebook.com slash wrong speak Adam. Um, definitely check out wrongspeak.net uh, where people... You know, if you want to submit an article, feel free to contact me uh, and just read the articles from the different writers that we have uh, coming on there and contributing. Um, you know, as far as what I'm doing, you know, I'm working on the second book slowly but surely. Um, you know, it, it's always a process. I'm trying to help people write. Um, I'm actively trying to help someone write a book themselves. Um, I'm writing op-eds as often as possible, um, you know, the New York Post seems to like me, so I'll, I'll keep writing for them as, as much as I can. Good. They can use you. Um, they can use some improvement in their quality. <laughs> I'm not making any comments. They're hit or miss. Okay. I, I'm, I'm excited to read more from you there. Put it that way. Adam, thank thanks you again for joining us. Everyone, go check out Black Victim to Black Victor, identifying the ideologies, behavioral patterns, and cultural norms that encourage a victim complex. On Amazon right now, go buy it. Don't be a victim. Don't Lift yourself like, up, guys. Subscribe, comment, yeah. share on your social media, do all the things. We love you so much, yeah. and we'll be back again soon with another one. Peace out. Bye-bye.